0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: It's November 8th, 1867. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. When I was 14, I was largely busying myself with playing basketball and trying to draw comic books, occupations that might also have interested the 14-year-old Japanese prince Mutsuhito, who, as far as I can tell, was into the 19th century Japanese equivalents of these, sumo wrestling and wacker poetry. That is, until today in history in 1867, when he was suddenly thrust out of boyhood and onto the world stage as the first emperor of the Meiji era, in a bloodless coup that he really quite possibly knew well very little about.
1: Yeah, because it was on this day that the last shogun, and these are, this is a term that you've probably heard the word shogun, I've heard the word shogun, didn't really know mm-hmm. what it meant, but they were basically military dictators. In theory, they served the emperor, but in reality, they were the, the emperor. The emperor was just a figurehead. So this, it was on this day that the last shogun, who was called tokugawa yoshinobu surrendered power opening the way for the teenage Mitsuhito, who would take on the reign name meiji to become the first emperor in 250 years to actually wield his power although it Mm. turns out the emperor didn't really have that much say in what happened next
2: no so you're right that the power that the emperor had anyway was subordinate to the shoguns which must have all along been a kind of uncomfortable chairman chief executive relationship you know (laughs) where technically you have the higher title but you can't really do anything the emperor was actually, like, by statute, required to devote his time to scholarship in the arts, mm. which, as Aryan was hinting at, was probably right for a 14-year-old. Just like me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but, uh, but as, you, as you get older, kind of awkward. And actually, that's why I think this was the moment for the people who supposedly wanted the emperor to take back control but really didn't want him to do very much and just be a figurehead. Mm. This is why they chose this moment. His dad had just popped off mm-hmm. and this guy was 14. So it's quite a good time to say, well, let's, have, let's give power back to the emperor who's always been there but not in power and have a scenario where he's in power but not in power. Yeah. So in a way, sort of nothing really changed by reinstituting him age 14. But it looked like this was a, a callback to the great Japanese tradition. Yes, exactly. So
0: this period of shogun rule, which is known as the Edo period, lasted from 1603 to 1867. And it was this era of very traditional Japanese government and culture and society, and it was quite peaceful but it began to lag behind the rest of the world not least because these shoguns cut themselves off actively from the outside world in a bid to protect themselves but also to try to protect the society that they had created.
1: So this policy of isolationism began to be adopted in 1614 after about 60 years of contact with Europeans mainly Portuguese traders and missionaries but they were eventually seen as sowing discontent particularly the missionaries converting the Japanese to Christianity that was seen as obviously under of the shogun's power so well was
2: 16- undermining of their power well it? yeah <laughs> <laughs> to be fair in
1: 1639 all the portuguese were expelled from japan and so what the this is the cool thing is that i knew that japan had been cut basically they cut themselves off from the rest of the world for a period mm. of time but what i didn't realize is that the shogunate recognized the usefulness of having one tiny tendril of contact with the outside world so they created dajima this tiny artificial peninsula built off the coast of Nagasaki where a handful of Dutch merchants only the Portuguese had been expelled by this time and the Dutch were the only Westerners who had trading access they were allowed to stay there and carry out their business under incredibly close supervision the islands completely surveilled by watchmen Mm. and escorts. Every single move they made was carefully watched. The only Japanese who were allowed to visit the island were people performing a function like interpreters. Once a year, the Dutch were allowed to visit a festival in Nagasaki, again, under close escort. But even through this tiny, tiny contact, the Japanese became really fascinated by the Dutch. Mm. This whole academic discipline arose. It was called rangaku, which means Dutch studies. And it basically meant (laughs) everything that the Dutch knew that was alien to Japan. So Western medicine, scientific and Technical knowledge. But there were also smaller things as well. This was the first time that Japan had been exposed to things like coffee and beer, chocolate, the piano, photography. Mm. So by this point, there was this huge mutual fascination despite the isolationism policy.
2: Yeah, well, being isolationist is all very well as long as you've got control over who isn't coming into your country. But this is an era where Russia is expanding, the US is expanding. It's only a matter of time, really, before Japan has to stop being so insular, and they'd managed to put off this inevitable outcome for a while just by virtue of being Japan, mm-hmm. i.e. small, and not obviously possessing natural resources that the superpowers were aware of. But once word got round that it's quite a nice place, and... And they've got sushi! Yeah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. turns an American. Um, and that American was uh, Commodore Matthew Perry, who... I mean, it was gunboat diplomacy, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, turned up with some with some artillery and was like, uh, you you, um, you, you want to be safe, don't you? Mm. Well, um, <laughs> you better let me in then. And so they sort of kind of had a treaty with the Americans to let the Americans in, but only because he so menacingly turned up in the first place. And obviously, once you do that, it's no longer just the Dutch having their weird once-a-year party, but actually American gunboats coming in. It's obvious that things are going to change. And meanwhile... Cause this is a revolution essentially what it is it's a revolution of the middle classes mm. trying to do something with the establishment tinker with it for their benefit there are people out in the countryside who are deeply deeply unhappy peasants made up 80 percent of the japanese population and they were forbidden from engaging in non-agricultural activities so traditional was this world that they sort of reverted to that you had people who who, who couldn't scratch a living and so the urban centres were doing okay, especially now they had this international trade, but the rural places really weren't.
0: Yeah, and I think that that combination of these unequal treaties that were being signed and food shortages opened people's eyes to the fact that they, they had slipped behind the rest of the world technologically, culturally, and so on. And it's for this reason that in 1867, these two anti-Tokugawa clans, the Choshu and the Satsuma, they combined forces to bring down down this shogunate that had been in power for so very long. And that's what leads to this moment of imperial restoration, which really is in name only. You know, you do have this boy king, but it's actually an oligarchy being led by the particularly these two clans who are doing most of the decision making.
1: Well, the thing about the Meiji Restoration that I think is easy to misunderstand is that it wasn't about japanese people deciding that they wanted to embrace the west it was the literal opposite mm. it was the fact that lots of the younger generation of samurai and sam- there were 1.9 million samurai in japan and it was a social class you know they're associated obviously with being warriors with big swords but they were mostly at this point acting kind of as civil functionaries you know carrying out administration in their local yeah. areas there wasn't always you know, there wasn't always a water fight mm.
2: and with no social mobility yeah like if you were a samurai warrior that that's was one thing you could be yeah. you couldn't then yeah. be an artisan or a farmer or a merchant those were the category yeah
1: and they really saw themselves as the guardians of japan and japanese society and they could see the writing was on the wall europe was forcing its way into japan and what they didn't want for japan was what they could see happening to other countries around the world which was then becoming an imperial possession or a dominion of one of these great powers and they realized that only by adopting western innovation as quickly as possible could japan stand
2: as an equal on the world stage and you know who also was there to see it was the last shogun uh, Yoshinobu. Hmm. He was actually offered the highest rank in the peerage by the turn of the century, that of Prince, for his loyal service to Japan, and he took a seat in the House of Peers. So they managed this, essentially, revolution quite well. I'm choosing my words cautiously, because around 30,000 people did die in this decade from from the violence associated with this, but it would have been a lot more had the shogun not retreated relatively peacefully on this day and accepted that things were about to change. And then on a number of occasions in the next year, also not engage in bloody battle about things, but, but see that this was the direction the wind was going. That said, even when you see the pictures of the violence from this era just looks nice because it's all depicted in screen print. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? something about Japanese art where you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. Even if you, and then you look at what it is Design and you're like, oh, wise, that's not it's so nice. stunning how they murdered these people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, and, and actually, you know, for all of this progress quite a lot was lost during this period because, for example, the majority of Japanese castles were smashed and completely destroyed in this bid to just sort of break with the feudal past and set up a more modern future. And it was only actually due to the existence of the 1964 Summer Olympics, which was in Japan, that they went back and put up these cheap concrete replicas of those castles for the purpose of tourists to kind of look on and go, oh, yes, this is a country with with great and deep history.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, by the 1880s, the pace of reform had slowed a bit amid exactly these fears that Japan was losing its traditional culture and holding on to the traditional culture had been the whole departure point for the restoration. And now everyone's like, oh, this is getting a bit much. Maybe let's stop smashing everything and cutting people's hair, etc. Mm. So it slowed down. The, from then, a more sort of fusionistic approach was adopted.
2: Yeah, the emperors weren't allowed to have concubines anymore. This is the last one. Boo. Boo.
1: (laughs) Putting Japanese concubines out of work. They had to go and work in the steamship
2: factories.
0: Tomorrow. I mean, if you put it on a monster truck, that would just be terrifying. (laughs) Ferris wheel is a much better option. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts part of the ACAS creator network.